This is Stephen Fry, and you're listening to Stephen Fry's Podgrams. Hello there. Firstly, may I thank all of you who've downloaded and listened to my first podgram, since it was little more than an incoherent stream of reminiscence poured into a microphone by a man with no functioning right arm with which to type, the piece was not available to be read as a text blog. From now on, however, uh, always assuming I'm careful enough not to incapacitate other useful parts of my body, podgrams will also be accessible in classic text blessé form um, from www.stephenfry.com stroke blog. The choice is yours, eyes or ears, or both, or indeed all four. You may too have noticed that the podgram was delivered through a heavy cold and a a fog of sleeping pills and and analgesic opiates. Apologies for the concomitant croaky dopiness. Little bit of housekeeping quickly. You may wonder why the podgrams can't, like the blessés, be downloaded directly from stephenfry.com. Why must one go through the leviathan that is the iTunes store? Well, I'm afraid that no host that we could find is capable of dealing with the one terabyte plus of traffic engendered without crashing, Um, and so we turn to the might of Apple to help us out. Uh, The problem we always return to is bandwidth. Bandwidth, bandwidth, bandwidth. Who wouldn't prefer uh, to pootle along the country lanes in a flowered gypsy caravan rather than blast down the motorway in a colossal juggernaut? The trouble is, when you've a certain number of deliveries to make a van, however pretty, just isn't big enough. Bandwidth, bandwidth, bandwidth. I sound like a 30s schoolgirl with a list. Bandwidth, bandwidth, bandwidth. What is she saying? Something to do with sandwiches, perhaps, or bandits, or bandits eating sandwiches and wearing bandages. Who knows? We'll never know. So, anyway, thus to the substance of this podgram. Since October 2007, I've been travelling around America making a documentary for the BBC. The idea is to visit every one of the 50 states that make up the Great Union. We started six months ago at the top right-hand corner in the state of Maine and will finish in May this year, 2008, in Hawaii. Part peon to the continental United States and its matchless variety, beauty and almost preposterous grandeur, part journey of discovery through 50 entities so diverse, proud and individual as almost to deserve to be considered nation-states in their own right, part attempt to discover the nature and characteristics of that fabled real America whose citizens are so much more than the sum of wearisome cliché, rednecked, gun-toter, Bible-thwacking faggot-hater, egocentric freak, camp Hollywood gossip, or ludicrous military figure standing with his hands on his hips, shouting in sunglasses. We happen to see a lot of New York City and Los Angeles on British television, and we see a good deal of sneering at religious cults and eccentric sex therapists and semi-literate politicians, but... For those of us who've spent any time in the country, these are no more indicators of life in America or conclusive characteristics of Americans than than films about braying dukes and vomiting ladettes are clinching definers of all things British. Um, If you're confused about what a ladette may be, you can always look it up. Uh, www.wordwebonline.com stroke en stroke ladette. God help you. Anyway, 
That's the idea. Not a propaganda piece for the American Tourist Board, if such a body exists. Not an attempt to seek out the stupid, the mockable and the obvious either. Incidentally, forgive a detour here, but if there is one misapprehension about Americans that annoys me more than any other, it is the lofty claim usually made by the most dim-witted and wit-free Britons that America is an ho-ho-ho, irony-free zone. <laughs> well, let it be established here, this day, that no one, on pain of being designated 50 types of watery twat, ever dare repeat that feeble, ignorant, self-satisfied canard ever ever again. Americans are no more irony illiterate than Britons or anyone else, and the repeated assertion, and it is no more than an assertion, not a demonstrable provable fact, is no more than a pathetic symbol of a certain kind of Britain's flabby need to convince themselves of their sophisticated superiority over the average American. Now, you mustn't feel bad about the fact that you, dear listener, stroke reader, have at some point in the past been guilty of repeating and transmitting this feeble myth. We all have. It's lazy, easy, and it gives us a warm glow. My war on the lie begins now. And it's not retrospective, so you needn't feel ashamed of whatever you may have said in the past about Americans and irony. Only promise never, ever to repeat it in future. Actually, even if you think it's true, which it isn't, at least have the grace to recognise that such a clunking, tedious, oft-repeated cliché is so dull and so well-worn that it almost doesn't matter whether it's true or not, which it isn't. It's just plain tedious, and only barstool bores of the first water and dull-witted gibbons would ever think it worth trotting out. Besides, it is ugly, graceless and rude. And back to our filming. Some American landmarks may be completely obvious, and yet for all that impossible to ignore. The Grand Canyon, for example. Uh, for our film crew to pass that by would be, well, it would just be silly. And there are cultural equivalents. Most obviously, perhaps, musical landmarks. You can't really travel through the Appalachians in Kentucky and Tennessee, for example, without wanting to sample the clog-dancing, banjo-strumming, guitar-picking, fiddle-scraping, bass-slapping, hillbilly sound known as bluegrass. And uh, then there's the Mississippi River, uh, from its mouth in New Orleans, where jazz, zydeco and Cajun music were born through the Delta, whence came the blues, and up to Memphis, Tennessee, which styles itself the birthplace of rock and roll, and thence to Chicago, where house music was first heard, uh, a city that also has its own tradition of blues, jazz, swing, funk, soul and rock. And a few hours ride east will take you to Detroit, Michigan. Motortown, Motown. And if you add to this the rhinestone country music of Nashville, the gospel tradition abounding throughout the South, the Tin Pan Alley achievements of Broadway, the cowboy music, the West Coast sound and Seattle grunge, it's easy to look at a map of America and see nothing more or less than an atlas of music. What a treat for me, then, to take those legendary trails. Yeah. Oh dear, um, this is an odd but, and I really must get it right. 
You see, I cannot bear no, 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 that's not it, that's not right at all. Um, I just don't get. No, that's not it either. Um, oh, you see, the thing is, trusted listener, stroke reader, I have a problem with popular music, a real problem. It marks me out as an inadequate citizen of my time. I mean, I like to think of myself as a, as a, as a, as a lover of the modern, a, a neophile, if you like. I, I regard myself as a, an adorer of computers and cars and digital doodads, television, movies, just about anything new and shiny. But, oh, now you see, I'm getting it wrong again, because it's not really to do with ancient versus modern. It's about something else, something, something quite other, something perhaps more profound. Let me tell you about a moment, if you don't already know it, in a most excellent film called Running on Empty, uh, made by the great Sidney Lumet, who has never actually really known how to make a bad film. It stars Judd Hirsch, off of of, of, of Taxi. Uh, I don't really know why people say off of, do you? Anyway, Judd Hirsch, uh, off of, of of Taxi. Christine Larty, um, off of... The Golden Globe's lavatory moment. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, look it up if you don't. It was very amusing. Martha Plimpton and the effulgent River Phoenix. Oh, and Stephen Hill, an actor with whom I'm ever so slightly obsessed. Uh, he has one scene as uh, Christine Larty's father. He's absolutely brilliant. Anyway, the premise essentially is that Hirsch and Larty, as Arthur and Annie Pope, once blew up a napalm factory as a protest against the Vietnam War, and they thought, they thought the factory was empty, but there was someone there who was mutilated in the explosion, and the FBI has been on their tail ever since. That's the point. River Phoenix is their musically very gifted son, born virtually uh, on the run, and he practices piano on a dummy keyboard all the time, so, so unsettled are their lives that they don't actually have a piano. So, we witness them, um, at the beginning of the film, escaping one near-FBI bust, and they arrive in a new town with new identities. River dyes his hair to a beautiful blonde and enrolls in the high school in this new town as Michael Manfield. He's, um, he's destined to fall in love with the music teacher's daughter, Martha Plimpton, but that's, that's later. We see him arrive slightly late at the music class. He gives Ed Crowley, who plays the teacher, his registration documents and is told to find himself a seat. Crowley continues with his lesson. He plays two pieces of music through speakers. One is classical, the other is, I think, a Madonna track. Crowley then asks the class what the difference between the two is. There's the usual kind of dumb silence you always get when you ask a class of teenagers anything. Eventually, one kid sticks up his hand and suggests uh, one of them's good and the other one's bad. Crowley isn't having any of that. Well, it's a matter of opinion, surely. And then River shyly puts up his hand. Yes, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Manfield? And this is River's answer. You can't dance to Beethoven. Crowley is delighted by this, as am I. You can't dance to Beethoven. So there we have part of my problem, dance music. It's not that there's classical or modern, serious or popular. The division is between music you can dance to and music that you can't. Now, I do know that much of what I'm about to say is wild exaggeration, but bear with me. You see, I want to address 
a terror that has lurked within me from ever since I can remember, a huge beast on my back, a great maggot in my brain, so therefore you can't expect too much rational talk from a fellow who's unburdening himself of his deepest fears and dreads and hatreds. This is not a blessé, incidentally, or a podgram, in which I reveal that I prefer classical to pop music, that is, A, dull, B, over-familiar, C, not true anyway, and, and D, as mad as saying that I prefer air to food. Uh, both food and air are entirely necessary, and, and besides, they each use different pipes to enter the body. They're different media with different forms of... Oh, you know what I mean. So there. Now, all that music that I talked about in describing a journey around America, I love it. I love it all, or can love it. I love country, blues, rock and roll, gospel, zydeco, jazz, swing. I love Tin Pan Alley, Roots, Bluegrass, Hillbilly. Less keen on the West Coast sound, on funk, on soul, Motown, rap, hip-hop, house, R&B. I mean, no, I, I don't hate them. I just, just don't like them quite as much. Outside America, I've gone on record as, as to confessing to a weakness for Led Zeppelin and to ABBA, the twin poles of Europe. But each is splendid in their own way as the other. But you'll be relieved to know this is not a, a Nick Hornby-style man list in which I show off my knowledgeable, insightful eclecticism. I know a great deal less about popular music than almost all my contemporaries. The point is, I do want you to understand how much I love or can love this music. It's important. It's particularly important when I try to explain to you how much I hate or can hate this music. Can you you see, it's all dance music, give or take. Yes, some tracks are dancier than others, some styles are dancier than others, but essentially, they're all about tapping those toes and swinging those feet. I hate dancing more than I can possibly explain. I hate doing it myself, which I can't anyway, but I loathe and detest the necessity to try. I hate watching other people do it. I hate the way it breaks up conversation. I hate that slovenly mixture of sexual exhibitionism, strutting contempt and repellent narcissism that it involves. I hate it when it's formless, meaningless bopping. And I hate it, if anything, even more when it's formal and choreographed into genres like ballroom and schooled disco. Those cavortings are so embarrassing and dreadful as to force my hand to my mouth. If I listen to music, I like to do it either completely alone, so that if I'm taken by the desire to move my feet and body, which is inevitable with so much music, I can do it unwitnessed, or I like to listen to it, to hear the line of it, to, to follow the lyrics and to allow it to work inside me. I do not want to use it as an exercise track for a farcical, meaningless, disgusting, brainless, physical public exhibition of windmilling, gyrating and thrashing in a hot, loud room. I do not want to use music as the medium for a mating or courting ritual either. No one would ever select me as a sexual partner on the basis of my ability to froth frolic and gibber in time to music, and nor would I ever choose a partner by such desperate and useless criteria. I can't dance. I cannot dance. It may well be true that guilty feet have no rhythm, but it's also true that perfectly innocent feet can also be unable to move persuasively or happily to the beat. I can't dance, and I so do not want to. Or is it that I don't want to because I can't? No, I... 
I actually do not think so. I can't play football, golf, cricket, any sport, to anything like a human standard, and I want to, desperately. Desperately. It really is not a question of being truculent and captious about this. I really, really, really hate dancing and have not the slightest milligram of envy for those who can do it, if there is such a thing as being able to do the kind of dancing that people routinely engage in. Not so much an accomplishment as, a, as, a, as an affliction. The unhappy self-consciousness of the adolescent on the dance floor at school or in the village barn dance or local disco is too well known a standard hero of rueful dissection for me to need to describe myself in that role too much. But picture it. Here were boys and girls my age, twisting, spinning and jumping at each other, and they all seemed to know what they were doing. Had I been confined to the sick room with an asthma attack the day disco dancing was covered in the syllabus? I mean, how did they know which way to move, when to fling up a hand, when to spin and when to jump, when to look into their partner's eyes and when to look at the floor? There was nothing written down. Did it accord with some musical chord change or eight-bar measure that I, in my hot discomfort and pop illiteracy, was simply not able to fathom? Yes, it was true that the girls often danced with each other, or in desultory fashion around a handbag, and yes, it was true that some boys were gawkier, jerkier and less convincing than others, but that didn't seem to worry them too much. They just got on with it. They had jumped in, and they were being borne along the current of the music. I was hanging on the bank, gazing in, 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 in what? In envy, disgust, misery, scorn, hungry sorrow? I, Actually, none of these things. I just wanted to be somewhere else. If I'd been offered the skill and dance charisma of, I don't know, John Travolta, say, I would have turned it down. I found from the beginning that a dance floor was a place I never wanted to spend any time at all, not so much as a second of my life. To this day, I cannot abide so much as a second in a place where people are dancing. I find it simply unbearable. Think of it as an allergy. I, I even hate films set in such places. I've never sat through all of Saturday Night Fever, Flash Dance, Dirty Dancing, or any of those. I feel ill just picturing them. The leg warmers, the tights, the stretching and leaping. And how people love to try and drag me to the floor, just as I'm tired of people saying to me, I'd really like to see you drunk one day, Stephen. I'm tired of them saying, I'd love to see you dancing your head off. Oh, God! There's a celebrated moment, you may remember, in, in Pride and Prejudice, where Darcy squashes the blandly pompous Sir William Lucas, who has said something like, there is nothing like dancing. I consider it one of the first refinements of polished societies, to which Darcy replies, yes, and it has the advantage of being in vogue amongst the less polished societies. After all, every savage can dance. Uh, we overlook, obviously, the less-than-respectful language, but actually that savage element of dancing, the primal nature of it, has returned to our culture and is now the basic form enjoyed by most people in our polished society. At a pinch, I would, I suppose, welcome that over the continued existence of endless long ballroom routines in which you have to be taught the steps of the, the 
quadrille, the cotillion, the gavotte, the waltz, and so on. I suppose the descendant of that ghastly form of entertainment is the vile terror known as line dancing, a proceeding so fatuous and horrible as to defy language. I've twice been caught with nowhere to run in one of those events. It was like being on the gymnastics mat at school or in the infant music and movement room, the sweaty ghastliness of it all, and the silly hats and embarrassing clapping in time to the music and the cocking of the heel and the, oh, let's pretend we're American. Oh, God, I've given myself hives just thinking about it. Oh, and hell, that reminds me of childhood Scottish dancing lessons, hopping over swords, or more recent holidays with Highland reels promised as an after-dinner treat. In this life, Arnold Bax is reputed to have said, you should try everything once except incest and folk dancing. God, I wish more people had listened to him. Ate some reels, stripping the willow, the Roger de Coverley, whoever the arse he was. Morris dancing, which is fashionable to loathe, I don't mind really quite as much, because there's never the faintest chance of being invited to join in. Organised dancing and disorganised dancing in which one is supposed to participate. That's what fills me with dread and disgust. Maybe it all springs from having to sing at school the worst song ever written, Lord of the Dance. Dance then wherever you may be, for I am the Lord of the Dance, said he, and I'll dance with you if you dance with me, because I am the Lord of the Dance, said he, and so bloody on. If ever a song were guaranteed to create a generation of atheists and non-dancers, it is that one. I danced for the sun and I danced for the moon, I danced at night and I danced at noon. I mean... Come on, seriously, shut up, shut so up, and go so dreadfully and entirely away. Classical music, we might as well use the term, is of course descended, like all music, from forms of dance. Even the most classical classical music has its roots there. Sarabands, gigs, minuets, galliards, pavans, mazurkas, shottishers, waltzes, polkas and reels, they've informed the repertoire from the very beginning. You'd be hard-pressed to dance to a gig from a Bach Partita, however, or to boogie on down to the Liebestote from Tristan and Isolde, River was right. You can't dance to Beethoven. Time signatures change and shift. There's no backbeat. Classical music is there to be listened to. It doesn't make it better. I really, really mean that I do not believe that it makes it better. And I despise the snobbery and ignorance that is convinced otherwise. But it does make it better suited to Stevens. I can follow the line, lose myself in the music's conflict and dialectical struggles, dive into the textures, surge with the ebb and flow of climaxes, and then surface again, all without pumping, primping, and body-popping. Again, I am aware that many of you, no matter how many times I repeat this, will think I'm being all superior, so let me be absolutely clear. This is all a weakness, failing, problem, phobia, hang-up, with me. It's something to do with physical shame, clumsiness, self-consciousness, pride in privacy, lack of coordination, all of which have culminated in a huge and insuperable hatred of losing physical self-control, of jumping in and joining in. The once sappy, bendy young tree is now too old for anything to be done about it without his gnarled, distorted shape cracking with a puff of dry dust. So it is too late to change. 
I'm acutely aware that it's more or less certain statistically that a large majority of you listening or reading will love dancing and will be annoyed and upset to think that I'm contemptuous of your adored hopping and bopping. But I'm not contemptuous. I think less of no one for loving to dance. I am fully aware that from the most polished society to the most um, savage, it is what humans do more than writing ball games, praying, knitting, riding, singing even. They dance in the mornings and they dance at nights. They dance in their trousers and they dance in their tights. Dance then wherever you may be. The whole world dances, except Stephen and a few others. So, do believe this, I am not in any way, not in any way, scornful of those who dance. I'm merely describing my allergic response. I'm allergic to champagne, uh, as it happens, and this has given me a very healthy and natural distaste for the drink. I could describe the loathing and fear I have for it, but it would in no way implicate champagne drinkers otherwise. So let it be with Terpsichore and her art. I am allergic to it, but I do not despise those who are not. I can't go so far as to say that I envy them, but scorn and derision, absolutely not. Just don't ever look for me on the dance floor. And so, when people ask me what I think of pop music or folk music or rock and roll or whatever other kind, I never quite know how to answer. I like listening to it. There's much of it that lifts my spirits, that speaks to my deeps, that cleans me out and cheers me up and flies me away. But as for going to concerts or being in rooms where it's playing, hearing it on television, at parties or in the street, having it pour from hairdressers, clothes shops and bars, well, no thank you. No thank you. And if you think that means I'm an enemy of the people, an elitist or a snob, then I'm sorry that I haven't explained myself properly. Thank you for letting me leak my unlovely torment all over you. Thank you for listening. And until the next time, farewell. And my profoundest thanks to everybody at the Positive Internet Company for bringing their expertise to bear on this podcast. You've been listening to Stephen Fry. For more podcasts, blessés and bloggery, visit stephenfry.com stroke blog. <laughs>